Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. In the last episode, we were zooming out and looking at the macro picture, what effect the war in Ukraine might have on the whole of world civilization. Well, today we're going to do the opposite and try to really do a deep dive into what's actually going on on the ground. To help us do that, we have one of the top military analysts who is a fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Did I get that right? His name is Bill Roggio. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much. And yes, you got that correct. What you've been saying in recent weeks has been interesting, which is that the impression we sometimes get from the media and from social media is basically just a litany of Russian failures. We see images of burnt out tanks, of tanks being towed by tractors, of people waving Ukrainian flags. And it seems almost like a a rout and that the Russians are not getting anywhere. You take a slightly different view and think that they might be doing better than we're getting the impression of in the media. Tell us about that. Yeah, that, that's correct. The, I, I think what we're seeing in the press, and, and I do understand it, is a lot of boosting for the Ukrainians. And I get it. I support the Ukrainian cause too. This, this invasion is illegal. Um, Putin is uh, killing thousands of civilians. So we want the Ukrainians to win. But we always have to be careful to fall, not to fall into a situation where our coverage matches our desires. We saw this just last summer in Afghanistan. Remember the U.S. press briefings, Defense Department, uh, President press briefings, State Department briefings that were boosting for the Afghan government. And I was one of the few people warning, this is not going well. This is not going as you're reporting. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of shades of this this time around. But the Russians, it's without a doubt, they're losing armor. They're losing trucks and, and, and personnel and aircraft. But the question is, is are they losing that? Is the Russians losing that quickly enough that they're not advancing? And I always say the map doesn't lie. You have to look at a map of this and track the Russian advances. And when you look at this, the picture that you see is that the Russians are slowly plotting and taking over significant terrain on all of the fronts in which it's operating. So I really want to get into the maps and have a look in detail at some of the campaigns. But something you just mentioned there, I think is really important, which is the estimate of casualties. Because the difference there is so huge. We have the Russians saying, I believe the only number they've put out in terms of Russian casualties was 498. That was around a week ago. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian side says that there's been upwards of 10,000, maybe even 13 or 14,000 Russian military casualties. 
I think the Americans say somewhere in between five to seven thousand. How do we begin to untangle that and get a sense of the real magnitude? We can't. We can't untangle this because <clears throat> the battlefield, it, the information war that's being waged here by both sides, by both the Ukrainians and by the Russians, is it's uh, stymieing. It's really difficult to understand what is happening. I mean, I've I've seen reports of the Ukrainian reports of thousands of Russian soldiers who surrendered, but I see images, uh, videos of single soldiers here and there that are captured. So is it hundreds or is it thousands? And there's going to, the Russians on the other hand are completely tight-lipped on the information. If Putin said that 500 were killed, you 498 were killed, you could be sure that number is correct. And it's probably the low end estimate on the Russians. So it's reasonable to think that the Russian took thousands of casualties. Is that 1,000, 2,000, 3,000? We likely will never know, but given the, um, the, the difficulty of the, in, in the information battle space that we're facing in, in this war. Why are the Russians not putting out information in the same way as the Ukrainians? This is really mysterious, isn't it? Because the kind of information war from the Ukrainian side is so relentless. Every day there are these uh, vignettes and videos of things going wrong on the Russian side. But as you say, there's nothing coming from the Russians. Why? I would say there is information coming from the Russians, but it's tightly controlled. Both sides have a narrative. The, the Ukrainian narrative is the Russians installed. The Russians are taking massive casualties. The Ukrainians are putting up a stiff fight. I agree with that last one. The second one is somewhere in the middle of their estimate. I don't think they're stalled again. Look at the map. On the Russian side, he doesn't want this war to be seen as losing. He doesn't so he doesn't he doesn't want the Russian his government to be seen losing this war. He doesn't want it to be seen that they're taking significant casualties. He doesn't even call it war. He calls it a special military operation. So he's looking to control the information amongst his people. Now, Part of the problem with all of the blocking uh, on, on, on the West side of the Russian press is that it's very difficult to see exactly what information the Russians are putting out there. But believe it or not, there are Russian videos of them destroying Ukrainian artillery and tanks and armored personnel carriers and targeting headquarters and things like that. That, inf that information is out there. That is being released. So he is trying to do a, a similar thing that Ukrainians are doing. But with, with the West, with the social media and, and governments blocking Russian information streams, it's very difficult for an outside observer to understand what is being said inside of Russia. Let's look at a map and let's try to understand in terms of actual troop movements and battles whether progress is being made by the Russians. If we, if we get up uh, the map from the New York Times, uh, which is one I know you've talked about on social media as being good, but in some cases, uh, sort of optimistic uh, in terms of the Ukrainian position. Um, why are we using this map? The New York Times, the Western media in general has a very supportive view of the Ukrainian position. So when you read very little in the press about Ukrainian losses, about their difficulties, um, in their combat operations, are they getting resupplied? But you read, you see everything about what's happening with the Russians. So it is striking when you look at a map like this and you see that the Russians aren't just bogged down, but they're actually 
advancing. I mean, there's another narrative here that began from the beginning. The, Ru- the Russians didn't have a plan, right? They tried to take Kiev, it failed, and then they ad hoc launched an operation. Well, if you look at this map, it's occurring on three or four fronts, depending on how you want to define it. They launched it in conjunction with when, um, with that operation in an attempt to seize Kiev. Uh, you can't plan an operation like that. So to me, using a map from the New York Times, using a map from the BBC is instructive because it, it, these maps sort of destroy the Western narrative that A, the Ukrainians are highly successful on the battlefield. And B, that the Russians didn't have a plan. And so when you look at this map, you can see the Russians have taken control of territory. They are advancing on some fronts. It is very difficult for them. Again, the Ukrainians are putting up a a hell of a fight, far better than I think most people, even the Pentagon didn't think they had this long to hold out against the Russians. But the, you know, a slow grinding advance is exactly what I would have expected from the Russians. Let's look at some of the different areas. So Alongside the battle for Kiev, there is this whole campaign going on in the east of the country um, where Russian troops are advancing through the Donbass, but also coming south from Kharkiv. And there's a sense that they want to cut off that bulk of Ukrainian military that is there in the east. Give us the background on that and, and tell us what you think the strategy is. Sure. And if I may really quickly address the Kiev situation, right? The, the, the the narrative is, is that the Russians want to seize Kiev, but is it possible? And, and again, I'm just putting a, a answering a question here that Kiev is an operation that's used to tie down a bulk of Ukrainian forces in order for the Russians to make advances in the east and in the south. Um, you what you when you look at that front, you see that the the area north and uh, east of Kiev is in danger of being encircled by the Russians. Now going to the east from there's the north. Uh, there's two, uh, three other fronts other than Kiev here. I'm looking at. There's Kharkiv. There's the Donbas region in the east. Kharkiv is in the north, and then the south, which is quite a wide front. That is um, is also a, a very important area. So, in in the north, Kharkiv is surrounded. The Russians have bypassed it, and they're moving towards a town called Izium, which I was told today or within the last 24 hours. Uh, actually, the Department of Defense stated that Izium is now under Russian control. If you look at that map. That threatens to cut off that north, far northeastern corner of, of Ukraine. And that can encircle, I can't tell you the number of Ukrainian troops there, but the Ukrainians are, are, are planted on that Donbass front in the east. And if you look at the map, you can see that arrow is pointing directly at the Donbass area. Just to explain to our, our viewers as well, because there's been this battle going on in the Donbass since 2014, a lot of the Ukrainian military are assembled on that front in the east, aren't they? And so some of their most advanced, most mechanized forces are all gathered there. So it seems like there is a priority to try and cut them off and encircle them from the Russians. And that's what that, that battle seems to be about. That's absolutely correct. You, you nailed it. Um, that's, that's the important of that Russian uh, sub-south eastern advance from Kharkiv to Izium. Um, the, it appears that the um, the Russian forces in the Donbas region have punched through uh, that uh, that front in at least one area. So that encirclement can it can trap a lot of uh, of Ukrainian forces here. That it's very dangerous. I think the Ukrainians really have to make a very very difficult choice 
in the near future? Are they going to continue to defend that Donbas front region, that front, or are they, are they going to have to pull back those forces to try to defend areas further west? In the south, uh, the Russian and uh, along the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, the Russians have taken control of most of of the coastal areas. This is important industrial and export ports, things of that nature. Um, this is where the Ukrainians export all of their their uh, agricultural goods, things of that nature. This is the the uh, economic heartland of the Ukraine. This is the offensive that came north from the Crimea. And it went in two directions, right? So it, one direction was to create this so-called land bridge with the Donbass so that, that there could be a, a route directly from Russia to Crimea without having to go via sea. Have they established that? Is that connection made? That connection is made. Mariupol is under siege. The Russians have fully surrounded it. The reporting on that is very clear. Um, I, and I'll show you why I think that the New York Times map is uh, a little bit um, forgiving of the Ukrainians, and because the, the New York Times itself reported that the town of uh, it's uh, Poloni uh, is it's called. That's if you look uh, at Mariupol, it's just northeast of that. That is under Russian control, but if you look at the area and the area around it is under Russian control, but that's not marked as so on the map here. It is still quite remarkable that Mariupol is not under Russian control. We're now in week four of this campaign. There's been heavy bombardment of it for all, a lot of that. It's completely surrounded, as you say, and yet it's holding out. You could say it's quite remarkable Absolutely. that they haven't managed to take Mariupol. Oh, I, I, I agree 100%. Again, the Ukrainians are putting up a stiff fight. There are reports of them repelling Russian advances. That also happened towards the South Ukraine nuclear plant that is uh, uh, north of, of Kherson, a little bit northwest of Kherson. But yeah, Mar so look, taking a city is very difficult. Uh, and it will grind down your own forces. So the Russians have decided to surround it and lay siege to it. And the reporting is, is that they're advancing slowly. They're, they want to preserve their forces. The, again, the Russians have taken casualties. They have lost a large bit of material. We've all watched those videos of Russian tanks and armored vehicles getting hammered. So the Russians have to take that into account. This is quite an interesting feature, isn't it? This idea of surrounding cities rather than taking them. And... Again, you could kind of spin this both ways. Either it's a masterful strategy by the Russians because it means they won't be brought into a kind of town battle which could be very costly for them. Or it's a sign of weakness that they don't have the strength to take those cities. So all they can do is surround them and take the roads and kind of move on. They've done it in Kharkiv. They're apparently still doing it in Mariupol and these other cities. And obviously Kiev seems to be that strategy. What should we make of that, do you think? Why are they... Why are they not actually taking cities? Mykolov is another city that's a little bit northeast of Odessa. It's difficult. It, 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 the history of warfare, and particularly in modern warfare, um, it is very difficult to take a city. Just look at Stalingrad and Leningrad or St. Peter, Petersburg during World War II. I mean, there's numerous examples in histories of cities holding out for long periods of time. Yes, the Russians took Stalingrad, but they took it at a high cost of their army. But the Russians were willing, you know, and it took months. The Russians were willing to, to pay that price. Now, the question is, is if the Ukrainian forces aren't able to counterattack and break the siege of Mariupol, the Russians are wise to bypass it, to surround it, and, and starve it out. There's no relief in sight 
for the, the people of Mariupol. They can't, it won't be resupplied from the sea. It won't be resupplied from the air. At some point, they're going to run out of food. They're going to run, run out of ammunition. So it's brilliant for the Ukrainians to tie down Russian forces, and they are tying down Russian forces. But it's also smart for the Russians not to grind down their army. So the problem I've, I've seen in this war and the reporting on this war is it's so one-sided from one way or the other. There's advantages and disadvantages. Everything is, it, it, it's, it, the thinking on this is, it's just, it, it only goes one way or the other for each side. There, again, there's advantages for each side to, to conduct or to use certain tactics. It does still seem quite a significant thing to understand, though, that if they're not able or willing to take the cities, then even territory that looks red, that looks like it's Russian-controlled, or at least behind the Russian front, isn't actually Russian-controlled in any meaningful sense, because these are the big population centers. So all it means is they have taken the roads and the countryside around these cities. So I just wonder, what does it actually mean for the kind of long-term Russian strategy? It, it, it means that occupation, in any meaningful sense, might even not be a possibility. So maybe they're, they are weaker than we thought they might be. I don't necessarily think it means that they're weaker. I think it's a wise military strategy to bypass the cities and not grind your forces down. Eventually, those cities will run out of supplies. Eventually, the civilians in those cities are going to, or you know, they're going to, they're without. Right now, it's they're without food. They're without fresh water. They're without, uh, you know, the the military fighting their ammunition only goes so far. I agree. In the short term, it looks weak, but also if this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
comes to a political settlement at some point, which it ultimately very likely will, I don't think the Russians have the strength to take, as a matter of fact, I'm certain after watching this offensive, the Russians don't have the strength to take all of Ukraine. If there's one thing I've learned in all of this is that the Russians are not a conventional threat to NATO. Um, they've struggled with taking what they have taken. But if there is a settlement, these cities that are behind enemy lines are essentially under Russian control as well. And they will have to be part of the negotiated settlement. Just to complete our kind of tour of the country then. So we have the situation in the east that we've looked at. We have this campaign coming out of Crimea in the south. There was talk that they would go west to Odessa. And there were these rumors that sort of amphibious vehicles and so on were about to make some kind of attack on Odessa. Doesn't seem to have happened. What's your take on that? That's actually a pretty clever strategy, keeping your amphibious forces off of the coast to tie down forces. The U.S. did this against Saddam Hussein um, during Gulf War I and Gulf War II. Um, just the deployment of Marine Amphibious Brigade off of the coast of Kuwait tied down significant numbers of Republican Guard uh, divisions. And so how much is the deployment of those forces uh, off the coast of Odessa tying down Ukrainian forces? Odessa and Kiev are probably the two key cities in this war. The Russians right now, they have not been able to cross the Bug River. That's a, a river. It's a river with deep canyons that's very difficult to bridge. So you need to capture a bridge over that. Um, it's uh, the, the city of Mikhailov is right over it. And the Russians haven't been able to take that. The Ukrainians wisely blew one bridge and raised the drawbridges along the, the Bug. And so the Russians are are trying to bypass that. They're moving to the north. But it looks like in that area, they've shifted and looking to go towards a little further to the north and east. There's a city called uh, Dnipro on the Dnipro River. That is another key. Izium is one of those key cities to watch. And Dnipro is another. If, they, the, if the Russians can take Dnipro, they can cut off the entire east and would control all of the south other than Odessa. Which is why the reports of them taking Izium are so significant, because if they're true, that does suggest quite a key strategic advantage. Right. Izium is the far east, I'll call it that, in the far in the far northeast of Ukraine. And and Dnipro would be all of the if they could take that, they would threaten all taking all of the east. This may be the Russian strategy here. We don't know. We have a lot of of uh people saying they know that the Russians want to take Kiev. They know that Russia wants to take all of the Ukraine. They know that, you know, I don't know. I'm just looking at the Russians' operations. To me, those arrows, where the Russians are attempting to advance, where they're fighting hardest for the cities, that tells me a lot about their strategy. It doesn't tell me anything. I can only guess on this side. Let's go back to Kiev then, because that remains the most talked about front. We had these reports even two or three weeks ago of this very threatening 40-mile-long column that was advancing towards Kiev from the northwest. The story seems to have shifted to it's now in some sense bogged down or stalled. That's the, that's what the word we can sort of hear quite a lot. Meanwhile, there's an advance towards Kiev coming from the northeast, which also seems to have slowed. What's your assessment of the situation around Kiev? The, from reports, life seems to continue in function within Kiev. It's not a, a, a an empty city. It's still, still an operational city. Yeah, I've seen reports that about half the population of Kiev has, has left. Um, the Russians control the area from to west, east, and north of the city. 
um, or are operating heavily in some of those areas. They may not be fully controlled, just the Russian presence. But the back door uh, of to Kiev, the south, is wide open. So this city is not fully surrounded. It is not fully under siege at this point in time. So what happened to that column? Well, the column, you know, again, this gets back to the strategy, what um, experts think they know about it and what it really is, maybe two very different things. I don't know. I think what happened, what I think happened is the Russians outran their supply lines at the opening days of the war. A lot of the advances you see on that map occurred within the first week to, to, to 10 days. This isn't an uncommon thing for the Russians to do, or a lot of armies to do, to dash forward and you know, go as advance as far as you can and outrun your supply lines. Did this happen? Again, I don't know. I think that is very likely what happened here. So what does that mean? Um, it means I, that they're not able to provide fuel and food to the people at, at the end of that column, or, or they, yeah, they're not usually, able for it to advance. Yeah, usually the issue is fuel. They run, they go so fast. If you're a military, you're going to put uh, usually enough provisions for a week or two to uh, sustain yourself from as far as food goes and days for the fuel. So I, I think that's what's happened, but I don't really know. But what we do know is this column has begun to break up and move towards positions um, in the north and east of Kiev in order to, the artillery has rolled out in the fields. It's begun to launch attacks on the city. I, you know, supporting and sustaining an army in the field is very difficult. This gets back to the idea that Kiev was going to be taken in two days and the war was going to be over. Maybe, uh, you know, perhaps the Russians thought that this was a possibility, but they certainly planned for that not working. And that's because that we know that because this offensive that we see in the north, in the east and in the south occurred in conjunction with the attempts to take the city. Uh, so, you know, I, I, again, I just get back to people, there, there's a lot of opinion out there on what happened, but I maintain we don't really know. None of us are a fly in the wall on general headquarters in, in Moscow um, to, you know, seeing what the problems are and what the Russians' plan was. But so overall, Bill, you haven't revised your view then, because two weeks ago, I guess what you you were saying was quite clear, which is that there was a sort of social media war, which was just a story of endless Russian failure. Meanwhile, when you look at the maps, there were these quite significant advances taking place every day. In the last two weeks, that doesn't seem to be so true. It, it, it's beginning to seem like reports of Russian weakness maybe are true, and maybe they are suffering real logistical or whatever kind of weaknesses, because the maps don't seem to change very much. Have you revised your assessment? So my assessment at that time was the assessment uh, the two weeks ago of this is what it looks like today. I've always been clear that the Ukrainians can reorganize, that they are putting up stiff resistance. I would say in the last seven days or so, things have slowed. Um, really, what the, the advance towards Izium is uh, one of the, the key advances. So there's been advances in the east and then in advances in the south as well. But Kiev has been very static. I absolutely agree with that. I uh, unfortunately, my views are, are quite nuanced on this, and they get they get interpreted as me saying the Russians are going to win. This is a, they have a winning strategy. What I've been saying is this is their strategy. This is what we see them doing. And as things stand today, not a lot of 
not a lot of advances in Kiev. And again, I'm not certain if the Russians really do want to take the full city or not. If I were them, I would, and I would make that a priority. But I do know what we see in the east and in the south can sever Ukraine in half. What do you think the kind of next gear for the Russians looks like? If they decide that negotiations don't work and they really want to make a big push and advances, do they have vast reserves of additional troops they can call up? Are there whole new units of their air force that they can get involved? What is the horrific second gear look like for on the Russian side? Yeah, the, the Russians do have significant number of reserves. How quickly they could get them to the theater? Um, this is and this is both for for ground forces and for air forces. Uh, what's in the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov and the, from the naval side is probably all they're going to get because Russian forces aren't going to Russian naval forces aren't going to be passing through. The Turks have, have shut down the Bosporus, so they can do this. Um, it will take time for for the Russians if they did need to surge forces. Um, if I were them, I would do so. They probably have taken losses to the point, and we're seeing reports that they are doing this, as well as getting foreign um, mercenaries, basically, from Chechnya, from Syria. We're seeing reports of that, Wagner Group being deployed. That makes sense. And none of that is imminently available then. So there is no thing that Vladimir Putin can do tomorrow to suddenly tilt the balance of this. I mean, obviously, short of nuclear weapons. There's Russian forces in the area, but Russia has its own security concerns um, in the Baltics. It has to, it, you know, so it can't, Russia can't strip its, its forces from everywhere. So, it, so going in and looking and seeing where to pull those reserves, that takes time. It's not, it's not immediate, but could they get reinforcements in? And I mean, they're probably already doing this. I'm seeing reports that they are doing this. They can get forces from the, in the Caucasus area, in the in the uh, in the in the region of the stands. They could pull forces from you know Armenia, obviously in the Caucasus. We're seeing reports of that. Um, they could pull back peacekeepers, and and they could they could uh, whittle down some units that are stationed uh, along countries with NATO. Pull a battalion here and a battalion there off of a brigade or regiment. Um, so those things can be happened. So you know it could take weeks or months. Um, depending on where they are and how and the readiness of these forces. What is really striking to me listening to you is that you're an analyst who, if anything, thinks the Western media has underplayed the Russian strength or the military position from Russia's side. And yet still, you are saying that they're facing enormous problems, logistical problems, the advances have slowed. The, the big story here, isn't it? Whatever the exact nuance is how the kind of Russian might has slightly been exposed for being less mighty than we thought it was. I think that is the real Russian defeat here. I said that earlier. The Russians have proven in this operation that while it can take territory in Ukraine and operate there, it isn't the boogeyman. It isn't the, the great threat to NATO as everyone had predicted. The, um, the Russian tactical problems in Ukraine has demonstrated that um, its inability to to dominate the airspace has has demonstrated that that bodes well for NATO, but may not bode so well for Ukraine and may not bode so well for Vladimir Putin. I mean, here we're just speculating, but for a kind of strong man leader like that to reveal this kind of weakness is a potentially lethal humiliation, isn't it? I mean, 
it's very hard to see whatever the ultimate negotiation, how this can be spun as an unmitigated success by Russia. If he is able to take significant areas of eastern Ukraine and impose a and and get a government, uh, sort of a rump government that is either neutral, it's neutered, it's demilitarized, some combination of that. Um, if that's what he's able to get out of that, he'll be able to tout that as as a significant victory internally. But there will be a lot of questions raised within the general staff of the Russian armed forces and within the intelligence services about Russian capabilities. One of the, you know, and this is both, a, again, it's it's not, um, uh, it's not one-sided. This is a, a great weakness for Putin and for Russia, but it could also be used to, to take lessons learned and how do the Russians need to um, internalize its lessons from this war and improve its military and make it a, a threat that everyone thought it was. I'll, I go back to, I'm a, I, I'm a student of history and the Russians, um, the, the winter war in Finland, and I believe it was 1940, the Russians went in and they had significant problems. They basically lost to the Finns. And then nine months later, they changed their tactics. I'm sorry, this is the Soviets uh, back then. Uh, they changed their tactics and and had great success in uh, against the Finns and had a victory. So it is possible even for despots and dictators and tyrants to learn um, from their mistakes. Uh, is Putin capable of this? Uh, you know, again, we don't know the answer. Uh, this is why I always reject, is the guy crazy? No, I don't think he is. I mean, I think that's an easy way for us to to just sort of say this guy's a madman and he's doing something evil, but we we should never underestimate our enemies. Let me ask you to sum up with one final question. Who, in your opinion, is winning the war in Ukraine as of today? So I've been generally looking at this militarily, and I would say today the Russian military has the edge. Um, the issue of sanctions and will that isolation of Russia we can only see that play out in years, so it's too difficult to know how that will affect. But militarily, if the war ended today, if there was a ceasefire today, and and then serious negotiations took were take, taking place, the Russians have all you know they hold a significant amount of territory, particularly along the uh, you know along the Black Sea, um, the areas north of the Crimea. And in and they've had a significant victories in the east. And you know, they you go and when you are in that military position, and also on the doorstep of Kiev, you are you are in a uh, you have the advantage at the negotiating table. So today, as it looks now, that you know the 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 fortunes of war can change. Can the Russians be bloodied? Um, the Ukrainian strategy is to hold hold out and hope to grind down the Russians. That is really what we're seeing here. Um, that takes time. So, but you know, both, both of what everyone is doing here, what both sides are doing here, is going to take time. But the, today, as things look, the Russians have the advantage. Bill Roggio, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Bill Roggio, a top military analyst and one of the few voices who last year correctly called the fact that the Afghan army would just disappear upon first contact with the Taliban after the Americans left last September. So he's someone we take seriously and someone who's not afraid to go against the grain. On this war, he has been accused of being too pro-Kremlin or too pro-Russian in the sense that he believes 
the on-the-ground assessment is more favourable to the Russians than you might hear in the establishment media. And yet, what I thought was interesting is that even he is conceding the Russians are having huge problems. Not only are they failing to supply their own columns, they're not able to take cities, which is, means that occupying territory in any meaningful sense is not an option. The advances that they have recorded have slowed almost to a standstill in the last week or 10 days. The might of the Russian war machine definitely appears to be blunted and a lot more vulnerable than anyone thought before this war. Thank you to him for sharing his time and thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.